Chapter Four, Chapter Five, and Chapter Six of The Moon and Sixpence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Moon and Sixpence by William Somerset Maugham. Recorded for LibriVox by Chip in Tampa, Florida, in May two thousand six. Chapter Four. No one was kinder to me at that time than Rose Waterford. She combined a masculine intelligence with a feminine perversity, and the novels she wrote were original and disconcerting. It was at her house one day when I met Charles Strickland's wife. Miss Waterford was giving a tea party, and her small room was more than usually full. Everyone seemed to be talking, and I, sitting in silence, felt awkward. But I was too shy to break into any of the groups that seemed absorbed in their own affairs. Miss Waterford was a good hostess, and seeing my embarrassment, came up to me. "I want to talk to you about Mrs. Strickland," she said. "What does she do?" I asked. I was conscious of my ignorance, and if Mrs. Strickland was a well-known writer, I thought it as well to ascertain the fact before I spoke to her. Rose Waterford cast down her eyes demurely to give greater effect to her reply. She gives luncheon parties. You've only to roar out a little, and she'll ask you. Rose Waterford was a cynic. She looked upon life as an opportunity for writing novels and the public as her raw material. Now and then she invited members of it to her house if they showed an appreciation of her talent and entertained with proper lavishness. She held her weakness for lions in good-humored contempt, but played to them her part of the distinguished woman of letters with decorum. I was led up to Mrs. Strickland, and for ten minutes we talked together. I noticed nothing about her except that she had a pleasant voice. She had a flat in Westminster overlooking the unfinished cathedral, and because we lived in the same neighborhood, we felt friendly disposed to one another. The army and navy stores are a bond of union between all who dwell between the river and St. James Park. Mrs. Strickland asked me for my address, and a few days later I received an invitation to luncheon. My engagements were few, and I was glad to accept. When I arrived a little late, because in my fear of being too early I had walked three times round the cathedral, I found the party already complete. Miss Waterford was there, and Mrs. J., Richard Twining, and George Road. We were all writers. It was a fine day, early in spring, and we were in good humor. We talked about a hundred things. Miss Waterford, torn between the aestheticism of her early youth, when she used to go to parties in sage green holding a daffodil, and the flippancy of her maturer years, which tended to high heels and Paris frocks, wore a new hat. It put her in high spirits, and I never heard her more malicious about our common friends. Mrs. J., aware that impropriety is the soul of wit, made observations in tones hardly above a whisper that might well have tinged the snowy tablecloth with a rosy hue. Richard Twining bubbled over with quaint absurdities, and George Rode, conscious that he need not exhibit a brilliancy which was almost a byword, opened his mouth only to put food into it. 
Mrs. Strickland did not talk much, but she had a pleasant gift for keeping the conversation general, and when there was a pause she threw in just the right remark to get it going once more. She was a woman of thirty-seven, rather tall and plump without being fat. She was not pretty, but her face was pleasing, chiefly, perhaps, on account of her kind brown eyes. Her skin was rather sallow. Her dark hair was elaborately dressed. She was the only woman of the three whose face was free of make-up, and, by contrast with the others, she seemed simple and unaffected. The dining-room was in the good taste of the period. It was very severe. There was a high dado of white wood and a green paper on which there were etchings by Whistler in neat black frames. The green curtains, with their peacock design, hung in straight lines, and the green carpet, set in the pattern of which pale rabbits frolicked among leafy trees, suggested the influence of William Morris. There was blue delft on the chimney-piece. At that time there must have been five hundred dining-rooms in London decorated in exactly the same manner. It was chaste, artistic, and dull. When we left I walked away with Miss Waterford, and the fine day and her new hat persuaded us to saunter through the park. That was a nice party, I said. Did you think the food was good? I told her that if she wanted writers she must feed them well. Admirable advice, I answered. But why does she want them? Miss Waterford shrugged her shoulders. She finds them amusing. She wants to be in the movement. I fancy she is rather simple, poor dear, and she thinks we're all wonderful. After all, it pleases her to ask us to luncheon, and it doesn't hurt us. I like her for it. Looking back, I think that Mrs. Strickland was the most harmless of all the lion-hunters that pursue their quarry from the rarefied heights of Hempstead to the nethermost studios of Shaney Walk. She had led a very quiet youth in the country, and the books that came down from Moody's library brought with them not only their own romance, but the romance of London. She had a real passion for reading, rare of her kind, who for the most part are more interested in the author than in his book, in the painter than in his pictures, and she invented a world of the imagination in which she lived with a freedom she never acquired in the world of every day. When she came to know writers it was like adventuring upon a stage which, till then, she had only known from the other side of the footlights. She saw them dramatically, and really seemed herself to live a larger life, because she entertained them, and visited them in their fastness. She accepted the rules by which they played the game of life as valid for them, but never for a moment thought of regulating her own conduct in accordance with them. Their moral eccentricities, like their oddities of dress, their wild theories and paradoxes, were an entertainment which amused her, but had not the slightest influence on her convictions. "'Is there a Mr. Strickland?' I asked. "'Oh, yes. He's something in the city. I believe he's a stockbroker. He's very dull.' "'Are they good friends?' "'Oh, they adore one another. You'll meet him if you dine there. But she doesn't often have people to dinner. He's very quiet. He's not in the least interested in literature or the arts.' "'Why do nice women marry dull men?' "'Because intelligent men won't marry nice women.'
I could not think of any retort to this. So I asked if Mrs. Strickland had children. Yes, she has a boy and a girl. They're both at school. The subject was exhausted, and we began to talk of other things. So ends Chapter 4. Chapter 5 During the summer I met Mrs. Strickland not infrequently. I went now and then to pleasant little luncheons at her flat, and to rather more formidable tea-parties. We took a fancy to one another. I was very young, and perhaps she liked the idea of guiding my virgin steps on the hard road of letters, while for me it was pleasant to have someone I could go to with my small troubles, certain of an attentive ear and reasonable counsel. Mrs. Strickland had the gift of sympathy. It is a charming faculty, but one often abused by those who are conscious of its possession, for there is something ghoulish in the avidity with which they will pounce upon the misfortune of their friends, so that they may exercise their dexterity. It gushes forth like an oil-well, and the sympathetic pour out their sympathy with an abandon that is sometimes embarrassing to their victims. There are bosoms on which so many tears have been shed that I cannot bedew them with mine. Mrs. Strickland used her advantage with tact. You felt that you obliged her by accepting her sympathy. When, in the enthusiasm of my youth, I remarked on this to Rose Waterford, she said, "'Milk is very nice, especially with a drop of brandy in it, but the domestic cow is only too glad to be rid of it. A swollen udder is very uncomfortable.' Rose Waterford had a blistering tongue. No one could say such bitter things. On the other hand, no one could do more charming ones. There is another thing I liked in Mrs. Strickland. She managed her surroundings with elegance. Her flat was always neat and cheerful, gay with flowers, and the chintzes in the drawing-room, notwithstanding their severe design, were bright and pretty. The meals in the artistic little dining-room were pleasant, the table looked nice, the two maids were trim and comely, the food well cooked. It was impossible not to see that Mrs. Strickland was an excellent housekeeper, and you felt sure that she was an admirable mother. There were photographs in the drawing-room of her son and daughter. The son, his name was Robert, was a boy of sixteen at Rugby, and you saw him in flannels and a cricket cap, and again in a tailcoat and stand-up collar. He had his mother's candid brow and fine, reflective eyes. He looked clean, healthy, and normal. "'I don't know that he's very clever,' she said one day, when I was looking at the photograph, "'but I know he's good. He has a charming character.' The daughter was fourteen. Her hair, thick and dark like her mother's, fell over her shoulders in fine profusion, and she had the same kindly expression and sedate, untroubled eyes. "'They are both of them the image of you,' I said. "'Yes, I think they are more like me than their father.' "'Why have you never let me meet him?' I asked. "'Would you like to?' She smiled. Her smile really was very sweet, and she blushed a little. It was singular that a woman of her age should flush so readily. Perhaps her naivete was her greatest charm. "'You know, he's not at all literary,' she said. "'He's a perfect Philistine.' She said this not disparagingly, but affectionately, rather, as though acknowledging the worst about him. She wished to protect him from the aspersions of her friends. 
He's on the stock exchange, and he's a typical broker. I think he'd bore you to death. Does he bore you? I asked. You see, I happen to be his wife. I'm very fond of him. She smiled to cover her shyness, and I fancied she had a fear that I would make the sort of jibe that such a confession could hardly have failed to elicit from Rose Waterford. She hesitated a little. Her eyes grew tender. He doesn't pretend to be a genius. He doesn't even make much money on the stock exchange, but he's awfully good and kind. I think I should like him very much. I'll ask you to dine with us quietly sometime, but mind, you come at your own risk. Don't blame me if you have a very dull evening. So ends Chapter 5 Chapter 6 But when at last I met Charles Strickland, it was under circumstances which allowed me to do no more than just make his acquaintance. One morning Mrs. Strickland sent me round a note to say that she was giving a dinner-party that evening, and one of her guests had failed her. She asked me to stop the gap. She wrote, "'It's only decent to warn you that you'll be bored to extinction. It was a thoroughly dull party from the beginning, but if you will come I shall be uncommonly grateful, and you and I can have a little chat by ourselves.' It was only neighborly to accept." When Mrs. Strickland introduced me to her husband, he gave me a rather indifferent hand to shake. Turning to him gaily, she attempted a small jest. I asked him to show him that I really had a husband. I think he was beginning to doubt it. Strickland gave the polite little laugh with which people acknowledge a facetiousness in which they see nothing funny, but did not speak. New arrivals claimed my host's attention, and I was left to myself. When, at last, we were all assembled, waiting for dinner to be announced, I reflected, while I chatted with the woman I had been asked to take in, that civilized man practices a strange ingenuity in wasting on tedious exercises the brief span of his life. It was the kind of party which makes you wonder why the hostess has troubled to bid her guests, and why the guests have troubled to come. There were ten people. They met with indifference, and would part with relief. It was, of course, a purely social function. The Stricklands owed dinners to a number of persons, whom they took no interest in, and so had asked them. These persons had accepted. Why? To avoid the tedium of dining tete-a-tete, to give their servants a rest, because there was no reason to refuse, because they were owed a dinner. The dining-room was inconveniently crowded. There was a K.C. and his wife, a government official and his wife, Mrs. Strickland's sister and her husband, Colonel MacAndrew, and a wife of a member of Parliament. It was because the member of Parliament found that he could not leave the house that I had been invited. The respectability of the party was portentous. The women were too nice to be well-dressed, and too sure of their position to be amusing. The men were solid. There was about all of them an air of well-satisfied prosperity. Everyone talked a little louder than natural in an instinctive desire to make the party go, and there was a great deal of noise in the room. But there was no general conversation. Each one talked to his neighbor, 
to his neighbor on the right during the soup, fish, and entree, to his neighbor on the left during the roast, sweet, and savory. They talked of the political situation and of golf, of their children and the latest play, of the pictures at the Royal Academy, of the weather and their plans for the holidays. There was never a pause, and the noise grew louder. Mrs. Strickland might congratulate herself that the party was a success. Her husband had played his part with decorum. Perhaps he did not talk very much, and I fancied there was, towards the end, a look of fatigue in the faces of the women on either side of him. They were finding him heavy. Once or twice Mrs. Strickland's eyes rested on him somewhat anxiously. At last she rose and shepherded the ladies out of one room. Strickland shut the door behind her, and, moving to the other end of the table, took his place between the K.C. and the government official. He passed round the port again and handed us cigars. The K.C. remarked on the excellence of the wine, and Strickland told us where he got it. We began to chat about vintages and tobacco. The K.C. told us of a case he was engaged in, and the Colonel talked about polo. I had nothing to say, and so sat silent, trying politely to show interest in the conversation, and, because I thought no one was in the least concerned with me, examined Strickland at my ease. He was bigger than I expected. I do not know why I had imagined him slender and of insignificant appearance. In point of fact, he was broad and heavy, with large hands and feet, and he wore his evening clothes clumsily. He gave you somewhat the idea of a coachman dressed up for the occasion. He was a man of forty, not good-looking, and yet not ugly, for his features were rather good, but they were all a little larger than life-size, and the effect was ungainly. He was clean-shaven, and his large face looked uncomfortably naked. His hair was reddish, cut very short, and his eyes were small, blue or gray. He looked commonplace. I no longer wondered that Miss Strickland felt a certain embarrassment about him. He was scarcely a credit to a woman who wanted to make herself a position in the world of art and letters. It was obvious that he had no social gifts, but these a man can do without. He had no eccentricity, even, to take him out of the common run. He was just a good, dull, honest, plain man. One would admire his excellent qualities, but avoid his company. He was null. He was probably a worthy member of society, a good husband and father, an honest broker, but there was no reason to waste one's time over him. So ends chapter 6